Good evening. Biden and Putin meet face to face in Geneva. Is China NATO's new enemy? And a candidate for mayor says billionaires are not his thing. Can a leading candidate for Manhattan DA say the same? With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Wednesday, June 16th, 2021. President Joe Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin concluded their summit on Wednesday with an agreement to return their nation's ambassadors to their posts in Washington and Moscow and a plan to begin work toward replacing the last remaining treaty between the two countries limiting nuclear weapons. But the two leaders offered starkly different views on difficult simmering issues, including cyber and ransomware attacks. The leaders didn't offer a joint news conference, but each delivered separate analysis on what transpired. For President Biden, it was about getting off on a good foot. I did what I came to do. Number one, identify areas of practical work our two countries can do to advance our mutual interest and also benefit the world. Two, communicate directly, directly, that the United States will respond to actions that impair our vital interest or those of our allies. And three, to clearly lay out our country's priorities and our values so we heard it straight from me. And I must tell you, the tone of the entire meetings, I guess it was a total of four hours, was, 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 was good, positive. There wasn't any, any uh, strident action taken. Well, we disagreed. I disagreed, stated where it was. Where he disagreed, he stated. But it was not done in a hyperbolic atmosphere. That is too much of what's been going on. Over this last week, I believe, I hope, the United States has shown the world that we are back, standing with our allies. We rallied our fellow democracies to make concerted commitments to take on the biggest challenges our world faces. And now we've established a clear basis on how we intend to deal with Russia and the U.S.-Russian relationship. This is about practical, straightforward, no-nonsense decisions that we have to make or not make. We'll find out within the next six months to a year, whether or not we actually have a strategic dialogue that matters. We'll find out whether we work to deal with everything from release of people in Russian prisons or not. We'll find out whether we have a cybersecurity arrangement that begins to bring some order. For example, when I talked about the pipeline that cyber hit for $5 million, that ransomware hit in the United States, I looked at him and I said, well, how would you feel? If ransomware took on the pipelines from your oil fields, he said it would matter. This is not about just our self-interest. It's about a mutual self-interest. And that was President Biden today. The top issue discussed by the two leaders was cybersecurity, with the United States blaming Russian actors for crippling cyber attacks meant to force various institutions to pay blackmail, and Russian President Vladimir Putin claiming it was Russia. That's the victim. The largest number of cyber attacks in the world are perpetrated from the cyberspace of the United States. The second place is held by Canada, then two Latin American countries, and then the UK. Russia, Russia is not featured in this list. So in 2020, we have received from the US 10 requests regarding cyber attacks to the sites in the US. To all of them last year and this year, our counterparts, they got 
full answers, full response. And uh, in our turn, Russia has sent five such requests and uh, in this year 35 such requests and we haven't got a single response to it yet and that was through an interpreter president putin although global warming wasn't high on the agenda the strategic role of the arctic was where receding polar ice caps are allowing the russian and u.s military to bump up against each other more and more putin says russia is doing nothing more than staking claims on its own polar territory we have talked about this in extended uh, meeting and we talked about it in detail. It's a very interesting topic because exploration of the Arctic and about the northern uh, naval route in particular is uh, very interesting to the economies of many countries and regional countries as well. And these concerns of the American part about the militarization, they have no ground at all because we're not doing anything that the Soviet Union didn't do. We we are restoring the destroyed, the lost infrastructure that we used to have there. Yes, we do it with the state-of-the-art means, and we are talking about the military infrastructure, the border security infrastructure, the environmental infrastructure. We are creating the AMRCAM infrastructure. There are the facilities that will help to save people at sea if, God forbid, anything happened and protect the environment as well. I don't see any reason for being concerned. I I think we must cooperate and we should cooperate in this regard. Russia and the United States are in the Arctic Council and Russia is chairing this council this year. And responding to U.S. criticism of Russia's human rights record, Putin pointed to the treatment of protesters in the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. The United States, he says, is funding organizations that want to do the same thing as happened in January in Washington to Moscow, but also adding the U.S. might be violating the rights of those protesters with draconian prison sentences and the killing of one Capitol protester. They are called domestic terrorists, and they are accused of a number of other crimes. Seventy people were detained right away after those events, and 30 of them are still detained, apprehended, and no one knows why, for one reason, because and one of the participants, few people died there. One of the participants was shot by a policeman, by a police officer there, and she didn't threaten this police officer with a weapon. Russian President Vladimir Putin. And coming out of the NATO meeting preceding today's summit, the Atlantic Alliance has signaled a fundamental shift in the attention on an alliance devoted to protecting Europe and North Africa to what they claim is China's growing military power. The 30-nation Western Alliance said Monday, the first time it has portrayed the expanding reach and capabilities of the Chinese armed forces in such a potentially confrontational way, including adding China to a list of countries whose actions could trigger Article 5, the self-defense requirements of the Atlantic Charter, dating from World War II. James Bradley is author of The China Mirage. He joins us from New Zealand. Joe McCarthy was from Appleton, went to the same church as my parents, and he moved China into the basements of Americans across the country. The fear was incredible. Just look at Time magazine for 30 years. China fear is an idea, and it's an old successful idea to marinate in the American mind. There's a lot of history behind it. You can look at my last book, The China Mirage. And this is an old record, I've heard it before. The way I would look at the G7 out there 
What are they crafting here? I'm 67. If I was sitting in my Barco lounger in the United States, I would say, wow, they have crafted this for old, out-of-touch people. In public, they are going elbow to elbow as if vaccinated leaders can give each other you know, anything. And then if you look at the communique, it's 600 pages. It's old retread stuff. The U.S. didn't get its way. What the U.S. wanted Europe to say was, we hate China, we hate... And what the communique, what the Europeans said was, it's a bit of a mishmash, uh, Palm, I, I hate to say. The big show, the big show is what the geographer McKinder called the Great Island. Everyone in the NSA, CIA, any military college, they know what I'm talking about. The Great Island is from Shanghai to Moscow. Get out a map. That's the big show. And Russia and China are knitting that together. They're integrating all that. The United States, NATO, and Europe have no answer for it because it's organic. It's natural. It's not based on military conquest. The Chinese and Russians aren't going to bomb all those countries. They're going to make railroads and go there and have tea. Is NATO sort of preparing the U.S. for the reality of a demotion of its role in all of this? The first thing we need to look at is what is the purpose of this G7? What's the purpose of NATO? These are cash registers offshore. So you can sit in Washington and say, well, we have this military industrial budget. We have this scientific industrial budget. It's an American cash register over there that we fund. Macron just said, gee, we should help those Africans. This is after hundreds of years of the French bombing them. How are we going to do it? Let's sell France's gold. Tony Blair, Glenn Eagles, 1990s, Bill Clinton, Bono. Remember, they were going to help Africa. And these funds are created. Did it help Africa? No, the Chinese are all over Africa. How many billions and billions and billions of our taxpayer money went into these funds that never helped the Africans? Macron, who would he sell the gold to? Oh, he'd sell it to the banks. They're washing money around. The G7 is like an old show. I mean, the Atlantic Charter, the Atlantic Charter was Winston Churchill trying to get Roosevelt to war. Roosevelt didn't know what was happening in his own administration back home. The Atlantic Charter is a symbol of let's go to war. And it's so hypocritical. Churchill agreed to the Atlantic Charter, which was freedom for everyone, and everybody can choose their own future. Well, at that time, he was on top of what, 800 million people held in the British Empire that had no vote? It was a bit of a mishmash, that meeting. I think it was made for television for people who imagine another day. And that's James Bradley. He's author of The China Mirage. He joins us from New Zealand. And a Chinese nuclear reactor plant near Hong Kong had just five broken fuel rods. That's according to the Chinese government. And no radioactivity has leaked. It was the first confirmation of the incident that prompted concern over the facility's safety. Radiation rose inside the number one reactor of the Taishan nuclear power plant in Guangdong province, but was contained by barriers that functioned as planned. That's according to the Ministry of Ecology and Environment on its social media account. The Hong Kong government said it was watching the plant and asking officials in Guangdong for details after its French co-owner 
on Monday reported increased noble gases in the reactor. Experts say the suggested fuel rods broke and leaked radioactive gas produced during nuclear fission. Noble gases such as xenon and krypton are byproducts of fission along with particles of cesium, strontium and other radioactive elements. We'll be watching that story as it develops. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Members of the group Make the Road New York interrupted Eric Adams' campaign event today because they say he's being boosted by billionaire school privatizers and real estate barons. Their allegations came on the release of a report by the group claiming Adams has received donations from at least three right-wing billionaires. Adams countered the charge and said more in an interview with WBAI earlier today. Not every officer is suitable to do every assignment in public safety. Uh, You won't have a podiatrist do brain surgery just because they went to medical school, and you shouldn't do that in policing. There should be a special unit in the police department trained to go to peaceful demonstrations, those who have great conflict resolution skills, those who are not in the normal assignments of dealing with a very high anxiety type assignment. Uh, many of those officers on the front line uh, deal with the robbery squad, deal with warrant squads. They are in constant high-stress situation. Then you take them the next day, place them on the front line of dealing with people who are peacefully demonstrating, who are voicing their concerns. That is a bad mix. And then you don't hold them accountable when they go heavy-handed in policing. Those officers should have been immediately removed from the department. Where there is perceived a lack of accountability that cops who do bad things get away with it. It took four years to get rid of Pandaleo after uh, killing Eric Gardner. That's not acceptable. When you have bad acting officers remain in the department for years, it is bringing down the morale of the department and it's creating an environment where we're stating that we don't have a zero tolerance of abuse. The police department in New York and across America is known for holding on to bad officers far too long and not handing down the right penalties when someone goes outside the role of public protection. What is your position on stop and frisk? Have you said that there should be a return to stop and frisk in some form or another or not? Not at all. And that is part of the political propaganda of the day. Here's what we were doing in the in this city. During the start of a police day, we were telling police officers to go out and get a predetermined number of stop and frisk. And that caused officers to illegally stop innocent people all the time, black and brown communities. I led the way to reforming how stop and frisk was being used and abused, I should say, in this city. Is there a role for a legal use of stop and frisk? Yes, the Supreme Court handed down when police officers should use stop, question, and frisk. Each time you hear it, people pass over the question part. Here's the legal role that is supposed to be used. You look out your window, 2 o'clock in the morning, you see someone place a gun in their waistband. You're going to call the police. The police is supposed to stop and question that person. That person may be a, a legal person that can carry a firearm. If you say a police officer cannot stop and question someone, 
you are placing the city in serious danger. Talking about housing, the Red Guidelines Board is meeting right now. They're discussing an increase in rents from zero to three percent, depending on how many years. What do you think about that? Should there be an increase? And number two, should there be an eviction moratorium in New York? There should be an eviction moratorium until we can stabilize this city. Renters in New York are dealing with hard financial times. And matched with that moratorium, we should assist small property owners. If we don't give them the financial assistance that they need, those small property owners are going to lose their property because we don't have a mortgage moratorium. And those small property owners are a large number of black and brown and immigrants. The wealth of black and brown people is in their small properties, and we must protect them as we protect renters. $40 billion NYCHA needs. Where should that money come from? The bugles you hear, that's not the cavalry, is taxed. NYCHA is dying. And so we need an immediate infusion of dollars right now while we fight to get our funding from the federal government. The regional planning authority put in place an amazing plan of selling air rights over NYCHA. We're not using the air rights now. A tax amendment will allow us to sell the air rights. There are some deals in the city that those air rights sales have been successful, and we can go in and do immediate repairs like lead abatement as well as roof repairs and really bring NYCHA to start bringing NYCHA up to the condition that it deserves. NYCHA should remain public and not private. How would you manage the frictions that we were seeing in Washington Square and Tompkins Square Park in the last few weeks? It's about the quality of life of our open spaces and park. Our children use the park. They're safe spaces. It's a great equalizer. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter what living conditions you are in. You can't have open drug use. But that is just not what we want our parks to do. So Marijuana is legal. I listen, I didn't say marijuana. I said heroin. Heroin is still not legal. When I walk okay. through the park, I see people openly injecting themselves with heroin inside that park and other parks and in front of our schools. Another way than a uh, curfew? Yes, we can. You go in, you spend a month in the park with a mental health professional, uh, with great nonprofits and organizations we have in our city, we go into the park, spend that entire month of sitting down, finding out the needs of people. Let's set up tables right in the park and deploy people to go around and find out the needs of the people in the park. So I see it as an opportunity, not as a deficit. There's those who are saying that there's a super PAC with three billionaires, Loeb, Yass, and Griffin, who have given you and Andrew Yang contributions for your campaign. They're saying you shouldn't take money from billionaires. What do you say to that? First of all, it's inaccurate, and it's a continuation of the silliness of the campaign season. I mean, you know, you've been around campaigns a long time. This is the silliness. They have not contributed to the campaign. We are not allowed at all to coordinate with an independent expenditure or a PAC. We're not allowed to do that. There are many, such as Ms. Wiley's campaign. She's getting half a billion dollars from Soros. What I'm proud of, over 75% of my donors are low-dollar donors, people who believe in my mission. I have the most diverse group of donors than any candidate that's running. You want a safe, clean, affordable, fair city, and that is what I'm advocating from. From a child that came from poverty, a child that was beat by police officers, a child that worked his way through school at night, a child that earned the ability to own a home, that's what I want for every New Yorker. I went through a lot, and I want to help New Yorkers that are going through a lot. 
Brooklyn Borough President and Candidate for Mayor Eric Adams. Meanwhile, residents and business owners in and around the Washington Square Park neighborhood will have a chance to voice their concerns over recent quality of life issues at a public forum at this hour. The NYPD's 6th Precinct confirmed the meeting in a tweet earlier this week as part of the department's Build the Block effort. The meeting comes as concerns over alleged illegal activities and loud gatherings in the Greenwich Village Park have increased over the last several weeks. A 10 p.m. curfew was implemented on Memorial Day weekend and the following, and the following weekend, but as since been suspended. The park is normally closed to the public starting at midnight. The NYPD said today that going into this weekend, the Community Affairs Bureau will pass out flyers to people in the park informing them of when it will be closed. The Parks Department will then take the lead on escorting people out of the park who stay past the closing time. The temporary curfew had led to a number of arrests and criticism over the NYPD's enforcement. Today's meeting is scheduled to begin at 6 p.m. at this hour at Our Lady of Pompeii Church. And what if the candidate is the billionaire and hasn't paid taxes for years? The news organization ProPublica published a story today about leading Manhattan DA candidate Talia Farhadian-Weinstein, who they say paid virtually no federal income taxes in four of six recent years. If elected, Faradian would take over the investigation relating to former President Donald Trump's taxes. Faradian-Weinstein and her hedge fund manager, husband Boaz Weinstein, reported income as high as $107 million in 2011, and she recently donated $8.2 million to her campaign. More than her seven Democratic rivals have raised in total. But according to a trove of data obtained by ProPublica, she and her husband paid no federal income tax in 2013, 2015, and 2017. In 2014, she and her husband paid $6,584. There's no indication the Weinsteins did anything illegal. Reporter Robert Fowderick co-wrote the story my role as a reporter is not really to describe what's right and wrong i'm reporting on what's newsworthy here which is that a very wealthy candidate who is able to donate more than eight million dollars to her own campaign had four of six recent years where she paid virtually no federal income taxes it is surprising and newsworthy i think to a lot of voters and a lot of taxpayers that that's possible. Has the morality that Americans put to their candidates changed? I mean, we had Trump, he almost won, he won one time, almost won a second time. Uh, people were saying, great, I hope he cheated more on his taxes. That's a good point. The fact that President Trump did not release his tax returns and created so much interest in them in doing so brought more scrutiny than ever to the way our to the way our tax code works in the United States. As a result of that, folks are definitely interested in the work we're doing. We've got some very interesting revelations about how the tax system for the wealthy works very differently than the tax system for normal folk. Releasing personal information, some people did express to me that maybe that's pushing a little too far. We are showing a ton of discretion in how we use this data. Our goal is to make sure that everything we report on has clear public interest elements. We're trying to be responsible stewards of this, and our work so far has shown a clear public interest element. Are you protecting your source in this? I mean, that source for this information can get in a lot of trouble. We do not know the identity, and obviously all journalists 
what they do is they protect their source. Is this candidate fit to hold office? What voters would want to consider with this news, this is someone who is running for public office. This is a government position, a very important one. They have a history of relatively aggressive attempts to minimize the taxes they pay into the federal government. So much so that four of six recent years, she and her husband paid virtually no federal income taxes. And like you mentioned, in the last year, she has been able to donate more to her campaign from her personal wealth than all of the other candidates have raised combined from all sources. Both of those things are things that voters will want to consider. And that is Robert Federici. He's a reporter for ProPublica who co-wrote the story. You can see it at their website, ProPublica.org. And finally, New Yorkers are celebrating Pride Month and police are preparing for the celebrations. Organizers say this year's Pride March will be held virtually on June 27th. Marchers are still expected and some organizers say that officers are not welcome. Police Commissioner Dermot Shea told reporters officers will do their job even if they're not wanted by everyone. He says he doesn't want a repeat of last year where he says there were dangerous incidents despite there not being an official parade. Shea added the department doesn't envision any problems. And that's from the news for Wednesday, June 16, 2021. The news is produced Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening. 